Hey there, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. Today, I'm joined with Nicole Netherton of the Travis Autobahn. And tell us, tell us, what is Autobahn? Everybody associates that word with one thing, and what is it? Birds, Birds. mostly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the Audubon Society was founded, the national organization was founded in the early 1900s when um, there were a couple of women, actually, who noticed that the fashion of the day required lots of large feathers on hats, and the hunting for those feathers was decimating the population of what are now very common birds, egrets, herons. Um, People would go and harvest eggs, nests with eggs and entire birds and put them on people's hats. So the millinery trade was a huge part of what caused the the decline in those populations. And these women said, this is ridiculous. We don't need to have this. So they they founded a grassroots movement to put a stop to this. And it, it took the world by storm. And they were inspired by this artist, John James Audubon, who painted the birds of America um, about a hundred years before they, they founded the society. But it's, it's a real testament of what can happen when people decide that they're going to do something about, um, in this case, it was just like a silly fashion that was causing a real problem in nature. And so they decided we're going to stop doing this and, um, founded it that way. Wow, that's that's an interesting start to an organization that's so well known and revered for birding practices and getting people to understand basic birding concepts. And it all started with women who didn't want to see bird feathers and hats, huh? Yeah, that's and then that's I'll tell you a little fascinating bit. Fascinating origin. So Travis Audubon is an independent chapter of the national organization. We were founded in 1952, and if you've lived here for any amount of time, you'll notice how much our habitat in central Texas has changed in the past several years. But imagine in the 1950s, they were already seeing um, with development and building happening, like pretty common birds not having a place to be anymore. And we have a bird here that's pretty special. It's it's federally endangered. It's called the golden cheek warbler. Even in the 1950s, they were seeing that the habitat for this bird was declining. And so they said, let's put together a group. We can we can start um, trying to protect this bird. And so much about it is being sure that it has enough habitat to breed. Right. So Travis Audubon founded the first sanctuary in the world dedicated to the golden cheek warbler. We still have it today. It's up in uh, Cedar Park. It's called Baker Sanctuary. Um, founded in the 1960s. And yeah, it's 700 plus acres set aside for um, the golden-cheeked warbler, which is a really important, it's a unique species. It's the only bird in the world that breeds only in Texas. Its range, its breeding range is entirely within the state of Texas, really only found in the mixed ash, juniper, oak woodlands of central Texas. So we're very lucky that we can still see this bird, and it's, we feel a real responsibility in our current organization, you know, 70 years down the road, being sure that we're still mindful of what that bird needs, protecting its habitat, being sure that you know, my niece and nephew that their kids can be able to, to bring their, their kids here to hear the bird. It's, it's really special. It was the, was it just the ash juniper being cut now that caused the, yes, or was so, it just development in general? Yeah. Because well, you, you had mentioned, I'm sorry, beyond the golden cheek warbler, a bunch of other birds you had mentioned that were also being kind of decimated and it was, is it just because of the development or yeah. is it? 
particularly well, people not it's like, like anything in ecology there's like very complicated causes and effects that we're talking about with when we're talking about bird habitat which depending on which bird you're talking about is really varied you know some birds need certain trees we can see that with the golden cheek warbler they require ash juniper mature ash juniper they need it to be pretty old to be able to peel the bark they only make their nests with ash juniper bark and spider webs. Yeah. Um, so, and then coastal areas, you know, if we're filling in wetlands to, um, you know, build things or um, draining swamps for agriculture, there's all sorts of things that can happen. And all of that has effects on the species that need those areas. So it's habitat loss in general that's a real conservation challenge. Um, and it, it depends on the species. But here in central Texas, you know, the cedar choppers came, and they were cutting down, Ash juniper to use for railroad ties. It was sort of seen as a as a nuisance species. You were like, get rid of that. Well, really, it's an important ecological species for the limestone geology. It, it's it's very important for a lot of different creatures that we have here. It's it's a very unique ecology. Um, and yeah, people started living here. It's, uh, there wasn't there weren't a lot of people who were living full time in Central Texas until we got into the you know 1850s and on. So that's when humans made a real impact on the habitat and we're still seeing the repercussions of that. Yeah. Well, are the golden cheek warblers numbers what I mean they're real still to this day pretty low or are they making a good comeback it's, for the Texas area? It's interesting. We um we don't know how many birds there are. Part of this is because when they were listed in the 1990s there was a there was a set of numbers that they thought were accurate at the time. Looking back, we're not sure how accurate they were. Um, and there are various ways of counting birds, as you might imagine. There are people who go out and do, they call it sighting. They're looking to get eyes and ears on the bird and counting individuals, usually counting males because a male indicates a breeding pair. There are also statistical models where they can estimate. They don't have to actually see birds, but they can estimate based on the factors that, you know, they, we know what the birds need and, you know, weather indicators, all sorts of things they can estimate. So it's a range. It's either somewhere around 30,000 birds or it's somewhere around 300,000 birds. We're not sure. But there are estimates that, that really fall all across that range. But part of what we think about is even if the numbers are increasing and we're having some breeding success, the pressure on their habitat continues to be a problem. Its habitat is getting lower and lower Austin's growing and growing. Yeah. I mean, you drive out on, uh, you know, out towards Marble Falls, say, and it's just houses as far as I can see. Well, all of that is habitat that the birds can't use anymore. Yeah. So it's... Um, they still have the big Balcones Canyon lands yes. that hasn't been touched, though. Yes. So the Balcones Canyon lands conservation plan is a pretty amazing project that went into effect in the early... 1990s when this bird and also the black cap vireo, which has since been delisted, but it was an endangered species at the time. Um, about 33,000 acres that are set aside for this unique ecology um, that we have in Austin and Travis County. A partnership between those two entities as well as private partners like Travis Audubon is our Baker Sanctuary that I mentioned is a part of the Balcones Canyonlands Preserve, which is this 33,000 acres. There's also the National Wildlife Refuge confusingly also named Balcones Canyon Lands. Together, that's federal land, right? It's a national property, but together that's a significant amount of habitat that's set aside for not just this bird, but provides some some, ha some breeding area. So, 
yes, it's, it's not all bad news. It's certainly, I'm really grateful to the people 30 years ago who like took a minute and thought creatively about how we can undertake this conservation project, but it's only going to get harder the more land we um, decide to clear um, because that land is, it's beautiful. Everybody wants to live here. Yeah. I mean, to central Texas hill country, you know, it's interesting is the biodiversity of Texas and that um, has what, 12, 13 different bioregions, ecoregions. And the central Texas area makes up, what is it? Black land or post oak savanna, Blackland prairies and the Balcones escarpment. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think that's right. But yeah, we have a lot of unique bird opportunities around here. And And not just birds, there's cave creatures, karst invertebrates there i think there's 11 or 12 species that the balconies canyonland conservation plan was set up to protect and some of these are ones that like you'll probably never see because they live underground and they're not easy to see birds are so charismatic they fly they're colorful it's really they're a great you know something to hang conservation on because it's easy for folks to to encounter them but um yeah it's this this ecosystem really doesn't occur anywhere else in the world it's hard to make people understand how special it is, but it is, it's it's something we feel a real responsibility to try to protect and be sure that it's preserved for people who come after us. Yeah. Have you lived here in Austin your whole life? No. Where were you born? I was born in Houston. Houston. Yes. Close enough. Suburban Houston. Um, actually from Katy, which is like, you know, formerly tall grass prairie. Oh yeah. Now car, car dealerships and (laughs) the like, but, um, I, I, from the time I was a little kid, really noticed nature. And we, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, developed my parents' first house that they bought, you know, they bought one of the first houses in that neighborhood and it was all prairie. And so I remember, you know, like exploring all the wildflowers and, you know, listening for birds overhead. Um, and now it's all, it's all been developed. Did anybody show you birding as a child? Um, not particularly, but I always noticed birds and my, my mom, in particular, always pointed birds out. She it was from Oklahoma and is from Oklahoma. And we would drive to see my grandparents. And she would always point out scissor tail flycatchers because they're always, you know, on the, the phone lines. Poles, and yeah. that's the state bird of Oklahoma. And so I just remember, you know, always observing. Like, that's just sort of in my nature. But I didn't really get into birding until I was an adult, like, um, like properly I'm doing air quotes properly birding with sure. binoculars and, ha- you know, field going guide. on walk field guides. <laughs> Somebody's pointing out. Did you hear that sound? Like, Would but, you call yourself a bird nerd? Yeah, absolutely. Heck yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, good. That's good. Yeah. I always tell people um, who get into this stuff, I'm like, we are all just nerds in the biggest way you could possibly imagine, those of us who are live this way. And I feel people who are on this podcast all the time, we're just the biggest nerds. And we, like wear it with as like a badge of honor. Oh, I love it. Like and I there is nothing more enjoyable to me than exercising that curiosity. It's like when you see a bird you've never seen before, it's like I want to know all the things that I can know about that bird and and you know, why are we seeing it here and what does it eat and um yeah. all those things. And a thing that I like about birding and I've sort of put my finger on um as I've gotten more into it is I mean, birds are great. They're beautiful. There's nothing particularly special about them other than they're really connected to everything else in the system, right? And they're easy to see. So it's like if I'm paying attention to birds, then 
it's really hard not to pay attention to things like, you know, clean air, clean water. Do we have trees? Is there, you know, are there the things that they need to be able to have babies and reproduce and, you know, find yeah. food that they need? And so it's like that's what connected me really strongly to the rest of everything else was like, you know, paying attention to birds. Yeah. That's what I feel nature does. Like we were talking before we started recording was it drags you into everything. And, uh, yeah. we have kids who come and they sit down and they don't want to be in outside, but then suddenly they rub two sticks together and they're like, Whoa, fire. And then they want to know like, well, what are the sticks that I'm rubbing together? I'm like, Oh, it's these plants. And they're like, Oh, and they're like, well, wait, what's the bug on that plant? Like, oh, okay, well, what? hey, something just ate that bug. What was that bird? And it just keeps going and going and going. And I couldn't agree with you more. So how did you, were, what did you, did you go to college? I did. I, I came to Austin to go to UT. Yeah. And what did you study? Nothing that I use today. I That's studied okay. um, psychology and Spanish. And then sure. I actually um, got my master's in linguistics, which I enjoy all those things deeply, but did accidentally did you, something else for my career. Yeah. Can you still speak Spanish today? Uh-huh. Oh, well, there you Poco. go. Yeah, see? Yeah, see, you can still, it's still <laughs> usable. Actually, I can read very well and I can listen okay. Ah, okay. But if you ask me to like put words together, it's like very halting. I, I used to be pretty good. I don't it was think fun. it takes people long. My, my friend just moved to Mexico and she was like, oh, it's, you ever heard of the 80-20 rule? No. Um, 80% of your conversations will be done with 20% of the knowing the language. There you go. So it's like that, right? So I don't think it would take much for you to get. I just need know. like six weeks. Yeah. See, that's like that's not that long. Take an intensive cooking class or something and then yeah. I'd get it. Yeah. You would, I'm telling you, you'd realize that 80, 20 thing. Cause she was like, it would blew my mind. Somebody told me that and I was like, whatever. And now I'm like, dang, that's all I ever do is like certain things. You just, cause think about how basic conversation goes with people. Um, yeah. So you went to college for psychology, UT, you graduated. Did you start doing something with um, psychology? And No. No? So I went straight to grad school and then um, I finished grad school and had um, part of my graduate work. I, I worked at UT Press and I got interested in publishing. I was, I was help, like, you know, helping out with editorial stuff. Um, I was like an intern basically. And ended up um, getting connected to some folks who worked in publishing in New York City. And so I actually moved to New York on September 4th, 2001. Oh, my gosh. Oh, this is going to be good. I worked in publishing for about 15 years. It was a great job, but it helped me. I learned a lot of things that I didn't expect to learn from that um, experience. But I did, I did sales and marketing. Again, not something that I would have ever thought I would do or be good at, but it's a really good set of skills to learn how to, um, you know, sell stuff. It's actually, I do that in my job now is selling these ideas about conservation and encouraging people to get involved in our mission. It's the same, it's the same thing, but I learned how to do that for, for college textbooks. Right. And so what finally brought you to birding? You said it, it, it was as an adult. So were you in New York and you, you know, I, the first like dipping of a toe into like real birding was in New York city. I worked across the street from Bryant park and New York city Audubon always had walks during migration. Uh, Bryant park is just a, a city block. Right. And so you would meet the guy in um, central park and uh, I had bought my first pair of binoculars 
and um, you just walk around the park looking for what migrants had popped in. And in New York City, the birds are really concentrated in the parks because, right, it's all it's concrete urban. and buildings. So the yeah. green spaces are just lousy with birds. And I just remember being like, look at all these birds. And they were different from a lot of the birds that I had known, you know, from childhood and from, like, you know, common stuff like dark-eyed junco. Saw that for the first time in, in Bryant Park. American woodcock. There was an American woodcock who was, like, really tired, just hanging out. <laughs> under the under the shrubbery at, at Bryan Park and so I did that and I was like I'm interested in this and then I moved back to Austin um in 2009 and I thought I'm gonna get serious about this so I started taking I joined Travis Audubon as a member I started taking classes they have like a backyard birding class where um this amazing birder Jane Tillman she's still very involved with our organization invites you to her, her home she has an amazing kind of wildlife habitat in the back, and you just, like, she teaches you how to identify the birds that are commonly seen in Central Texas backyards. And I just got really into it. It's like the more you do it and the more you spend time with people who can, like, easily teach you what you're seeing and what you're hearing, I just got super into it. And then accidentally, um, well, this is a different story, too. I So I got into birding. It was great. And then I got invited on a trip to Antarctica, which is an amazing, Whoa. amazing experience. This was in 2015. <laughs> I was still I working, for the, was still go working there. for the publisher. Yes, you can go there. Still working for the book publisher, enjoying that, but, like, sort of, you know, I'd been doing it for 15 years. And going to Antarctica blew my mind. And I was like, look at, I'm half, I'm the furthest from home that I've ever been. And I see, you know, we're learning about all this incredible wildlife, the biodiversity there, and, like, what about the ice melting? And what about climate change and all these things? And I was like, I should probably do a little bit more. Like, how about two clicks more for the environment than I'm doing in my normal life? And I thought that would be, like, volunteering. I didn't know. And I ended up changing careers. I, I got into doing fundraising, which, again, is not that different from marketing, doing fundraising um, and switching over to the nonprofit world. And then, you know, two years after that, I got this job with Travis Audubon. So it's just sort of, again, accidents up and down, but um, sort of leaning into what, where I felt like I could make a difference with the skills that I had, but, but pointing towards nature, pointing towards conservation. But you say accidents. It's not accidents. I mean, it seems like accidents. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a reason for all of it, but. Um, well, you found your passion. You found your calling. Yeah, and, when and it you, was unexpected. I guess that's a better word for it. It's like it's not it's not what I would have predicted if I had control over no, all the things. Yeah. None of us do that. Yeah. I mean, we we can try, I feel this is just, you know, getting on a sidetrack of career talk here, but we can try as we might to pick what we want to do. Like, I don't want to do this. And but in the end of the day, I really just hope that all humans are happy and healthy. You know? I mean, I know money is obviously a, a factor within those things, but it's, yeah, I um, I talk about ikigai on this podcast all the time. Do you know what that is? Mm -mm. Ikigai is like a Japanese word for, means the Zen purpose for being. And if you think about um, four circles coming together, right, you have this one little space sure. right here. But it's that which you're good at, you know, that which you have a passion for, that which the world needs, and that which you can be paid for. And so what I'm saying is once... I think you find your icky guy, the, the accidents that people keep saying are accidents. It's like, no, that's, that's really your manifesting. Cause you know, now what you're after with conviction through passion, you're showing up with this presence and 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, look, so your title at Travis Audubon, what is it? Tell us. I'm the executive director. Bam! How did that happen? How long have you been working there? Uh, five years. See, look at that. Yeah. So it's all about how you're showing up in this world. And yeah, Nicole, you definitely have the passion, I feel. So <laughs> you got into this role at Audubon. And what type of programs are offered? What do y'all, what's the... If you want to re go over missions, visions, values, and all Absolutely. that real quick, but you can just talk about programs too. Yeah, what I like to talk about is how a little bit of what I said before. It's um, we talk about inspiring conservation through birding, right? If you're noticing birds, if you're starting to enjoy them, what does that mean for the rest of the system? How does this connect to all the rest of ecology? And a huge part of that is education, right? So I think that's probably the most important part of our mission is. Um, environmental education and it's through this lens of birding and education can mean you know we offer classes on shorebirds if you want to learn how to identify impeds which are impossible you can take a class um, but also like what's we an have, impid an impid is is like a flycatcher all those flycatchers look very similar oh. uh, those are impids um, and you can so there's classes, but then there's also inviting kids to experience birding, however that looks. We're doing a big youth birding camp tomorrow that we had so many applicants, we almost had to, in, instead of, of telling kids no, we just made it a little bit bigger. But getting kids used to the idea of like paying attention to what birds they're seeing, because if you can get a kid excited about nature, then they're the ones who start paying attention and do something about it when they notice that things go wrong. We need those kids you know, 20 years from now when we're yeah. too tired to do this work anymore. <laughs> well, and I agree because you told me, uh, well, you told all of us at the beginning that you kind of grew up in the fields. You did observe the birds. You know, what's interesting is how often, you know, you point a hawk out to somebody and they're like, oh, I never even noticed that. And then suddenly they start seeing hawks everywhere. Mm -hmm. And again, they've always been there. You just, they never had that awareness check. Yeah. And so I think that's birds too. Sometimes I point out the sounds of birds and someone's like, Dude, that's been dead noise to me the whole time. Uh -huh. And I'm like, really? I'm like, something's going on over there, man. Like the birds are telling us something. Absolutely. And well, and COVID was a great example of how if people were at home, if they were stuck looking in their backyard, so many opportunities to notice birds in a new way. Like lots of people got bird feeders for the first time. I have a friend who said that her husband asked her, have the birds always been this loud? <laughs> like... Truly never noticed. Yeah. They're singing all day because we're also not here. So did, did you see a spike in birding when during COVID? We did. Our yeah. membership exploded. People oh, were really interested awesome. in it. We were offering a lot of our programming online because it was easy. But then also like outside was the only place to be. So yeah. a lot of people really got interested in it. Oh, and I bet. Yeah, that's a huge part, I think, of the outreach we were able to do because not only was that one of the few places that, especially at the beginning, people felt safe to be, but it's very healing. Like mental health effects, there's studies about the mental health effects of birdsong, for example, like lowers your cortisol, lowers your blood pressure, all these things. I mean, we're supposed to be outside doing this stuff. And birds are just, an, like I said, they're, they're charismatic, they're colorful. It's like, it's easy to see. They do move around a lot, but um, once you get used to using binoculars, and you also don't have to have binoculars. Um, but yeah, I have found I found it to be an incredibly helpful thing in COVID, and I know a lot of other people did. It was just a a real opportunity for us, which was great. So I'd say education and having those experiences, like experiment experiential learning, right, of going out with other people who know a lot about it. And then we still do a lot with habitat protection. Like I was saying, we have the 
one of the the oldest um, sanctuary for the Golden Cheek, for example, and we do a lot of, of conservation advocacy, being sure that um, the places birds need and the things that they need that we are the we are their voice. We're trying to to be the advocate for them because you know if there's money to be made, sometimes that's people's priority instead of thinking about like how can we be bal- in balance with nature? How can we think about not destroying something that we're going to wish we had later? Um, that's we feel like that's a real responsibility for our organization. Yeah, what. What are some challenges doing all this then? Oh, there's a lot of challenges actually. Um, Would you say it's all funding or no, is it? I think it's, there's, there's a lot of challenges around getting people's attention, I think. Um, because unfortunately, and maybe other people have shared this with you, I find just working in the environmental space, people see that as like outside of humans or not a high priority. It's like we have so many other pressing problems with humanity and those are important. I'm not saying they're not, but if it's some of this existential stuff that we don't have to solve today, we can keep pushing, you know, global warming, culturally, yeah, biodiversity loss. Cause it's like the average person doesn't see how this affects their daily life, but the cumulative effects of that are a threat to our species. Like it's not, it's no joke. Yeah. And so especially in um, Texas where, you know, in Austin, we have local conservation priorities that we've been very active in. And then the state leadership most of the time is not interested. And in yeah, there's no money to be made on protecting birds. Don't you know? No. <laughs> I'm going to push this a little bit. So that's a, that's a, a thing that trying to get people's attention. Um, and, and keep it and, and help them see the urgency because um, it's not it's not optional. The environment is not optional. And we are humans and we think we're the smartest and we have to have the rest of the ecological system or, or we don't make it. So it's like I, I talk about, sorry, this is the depressing portion, but we'll no, it's, yeah. I talk about um, it's like our ecological system is a game of Jenga. And it's like we keep, you know, oh, removing it's a good metaphor. pieces of habitat or, you know, a species here, a species there. Like how important is a certain kind of butterfly? I'm not sure. But when is the next piece that we take out that causes a collapse to the whole system? I can't know. None of us can know. But it's those are the sorts of stakes that we're talking about. It's like we don't, we don't have control. We're not smarter than everything else. We're not separate from any of this. And I feel like that's really hard for people to hear because it feels very hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And then we have like um, bioengineered creatures that we're kind of putting in as odd pieces into that Jenga thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's wild. But yeah, I've actually heard people advocate for like trying to kill off all the mosquitoes in the world and different things like that. And I'm like, man, come on. There's just, There's just too many examples yeah, of where we've don't tried be to be in charge. And guess what? Well, Mother nature is always in charge. Yeah. My, she one of wins. My, my favorite ones is the one where the, uh, the salt cedars, I guess of big bend. I don't know if you know that story, mm-hmm. but they introduced the salt cedar first, I guess, I don't know. Erosion might've been something else, but then it got out of control and they're like, Oh no. And they were like, did. they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to bring in the salt cedar beetle. Bad idea. <laughs> I can already tell you how this, it's, I've never heard this story and yet I know. It's a bad idea. I know. And that's what's so interesting is how humans continuously, I was actually watching some um, videos on like geofluvial morphology the other day and I was so fascinated by that and how rivers 
you know, they were like, oh, well, we're just going to put this straight line down where the river used to be, you know, a winding thing. And then eventually over years, it just ends up flooding everybody and destroying everybody's neighborhood that they built around the straight sides because they wanted straight roads. And it's wild what we, and yet here we are, we're having this conversation. And yet right now, somebody's out there probably digging a river straight and there's so much proof. There's yeah. so much evidence that what you're saying that, that needs to be protected should be. Yeah. And yet, so and sometimes I, I get it's a matter of like, is. I'm going to ignore because I want to make money or I want to do a thing or whatever. And sometimes it's just because people don't know. Like I'm, I'm continually surprised when I talk to people about what I do or just about nature in general. Sometimes it's like, they just don't have even the basic understanding of how, how water works, how soil works, um, how all of these, you know, how you got to have insects to have, to have birds. Don't, don't go spray all the stuff in your yard. If you want there to be birds, if you want, it's yeah. And I feel like it's a, it's an, it's a obligation for organizations like us, but I think we need to start being sure that kids are exposed to this early. Cause if they, if they have a basic understanding of how this all fits together, um, we'll all be better off because we're, we're just leaving this out of our, of our basic education. It's a shame. Yeah, it's true. You know, um, at Natureversity, we have a lot of uh, just kids who were all different types. You know, they come in really passionate about being outside because they like Bear grills or whatever it is, alone. <laughs> they all talk about alone. But the other thing is we have kids who, you know, they're just kind of, you know, they don't really know. But one time there was this boy, um, Zach, who came in and he had big thick glasses and he wasn't fast and uh, he wasn't that great at all the games in the morning. But in the towards the later part of this week, we began playing this game um, called Resource Readers. Mm-hmm. And Zach didn't get picked for like anybody's team because he wasn't fast and all these different things. And he kind of didn't want to play the game. But I was telling him because he didn't want to play. I was like, hey, man, I was like, I just want you to know that, that all these birds out here, like they're telling you something. I was like, and actually what they're telling you is where all those other kids are at. So I was like, I have a present for you. I was like, and I know you love to read. I was like, so this book is called What the Robin Knows. Yeah. And I gave him this book and he came back next summer and I think it was the second week of camp and he didn't, you know, there he just had to be on a team and he was like, okay, but he was like, can I be the flag guard? And they're like, yeah, you're slow, whatever. Sure. He guarded this little ring that we're in. And he told every single kid, like, hey, there's three kids coming that way. There's one kid coming this way. And suddenly, everybody was fighting over who got to be on Zach's team because nobody could capture their flag because yeah. he could just figure. And I was like, Zach, that's what I mean. So nature is not just for, you know, the, the I don't know, the, the super nerds like you and I, but it's every, for, for somebody who just, I felt like Zach needed a foundation. Mm-hmm. Somebody, so something that he could stand on, and say, I might not be fast, like, I might not be all these things, but I, I have one thing, and I just think that's so beautiful, and I think nature really gives us an opportunity to discover that one thing about yeah, ourselves. Yeah, I agree. That's great. So, sorry, I just, I wanted to tell you I that like story about, about birding. Um, so, biggest struggles in the field, we talked about just lack of awareness to the impacts of ecological destruction in general. I'm um, just getting back over to this conversation now. And so what kind of students do you find coming into these programs? Do you feel like you're getting a good influx of younger generations or is it predominantly older generations? I think a lot of people out there who think Audubon think, you know, 
people with <laughs> binoculars and stuff, the elderly that you see walking around parks. But I, yeah, I want to hear more about that. Yeah, it's a real mix, which is great. Um, we do a lot that's aimed towards kids, like I said, and we're finding, and I think this is one of the positive things about COVID that I said, that people got into it and then that's continued. So um, school age kids, we have a lot of programming for them. We have a young birders club. We are doing this, this camp. We offer family nature days at one of our nature preserves where it's just like come and explore, you know, guided hikes and a lot of just like exploration and play. And then, yeah, I think bird watching, you're right that, it, that the stereotype is like, you know, white haired uh, folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, which that's true, but, and I'm going to be one of those people. But also we are finding incredible engagement with younger people, and I think, um, and more diverse audiences. That's our, that's an incredible thing that has been happening more, not just uh, in our organization, but just across um, across the country when people, you know, see ambassadors, you know, people of color and, um, you know, people from different backgrounds who are doing all sorts of birding in different places. Then it's just like they're much more visible than they've ever been. So, um yeah, it's something that I get excited about because, like I said, it's like a thing that can hook you in. If you can get more people paying attention to these issues, then we're just building a bigger coalition. We have, you know, a louder voice and, and more people to pay attention. Have you ever gotten to do the Texas Burning Trail? You know, I have not done it, like, formally, but I've been on, on parts of it just in, in my travels, yeah. 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 I'm so sorry. When you were when we were talking about the type of people that this draws in, I was just thinking about all the times that I was on that trail. And like you said, the types of people that we most encounter. But I find that when I meet birders, you know, who are elderly, I just want to ask them five million questions. Sure. <laughs> and so... I really just, for, for those of you who may be listening, who are, you know, a birder and you've been doing this a long time, I just want to say thank you for being so passionate and sharing your wisdom with me because I've been to all kinds of places, Resaca de la Palma and all these, yeah. see these bird, you know, those planes, Chachalaca things, those are so weird. They just like <laughs> fight in those parking lots down. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen that yeah, at like Laguna Atascosa or anything, but um, yeah, like have you ever... Um, gotten into bird tracks you ever go bird tracking no yeah bird tracking is a whole thing check out this book over here is this like oh oh yeah Do you, if, you, if you know anything about dr mark elbrock so dr mark elbrock is a puma researcher and a, a doctor of mountain lion research but i believe this is one of his first books that he published and it was all about bird tracks and um, he is a wonderful contributor to the world of wildlife tracking. I would love to have him on this podcast, but I know he's a very, very busy man. If anybody knows Mark Elbrock and can get him on here, tell him to call. But th isn't this book cool? Oh, it's so cool. This really blew my mind, and this is actually what got me into birding. This takes observation to the next level, because not only are you aware of what's uh -huh. around you, it's like you're looking for the clues Oh, yeah. On the ground and in the bushes and things. Yeah. You know, what was funny is um, this picture right here. This is a funny picture. It's a, it's a Bob White. And what we're looking at, folks who are listening to this, we're looking at some tracks in the sand. And if you see, it says where it was taken. It was taken in Texas. And it's probably along the coast of where I went tracking. And I'll never forget this moment where I was down there. And we were looking at these tracks. And I was like, boy, they look like Bob White tracks. And my buddy leans over and he goes, oh, yeah? He's like, you think so? And I was like, yeah, probably. He goes, 
and out in the distance, you hear the same thing just echo back in an instant. And uh-huh. I was like, no way. And he's like, that's a Bob White. I was like, oh, that was so cool. So exactly, the world of wildlife tracking in birds, it not only allows you to understand like, no, I didn't see the bird here at all. Because when you think about a Bob White, they're so good at running away. Oh you don't gosh. ever really see them that often. But you see their feet in the sands of the dunes down in Corpus Christi all the time. And so you get to see their poops and what they're eating and all the different things. So animal tracking in the world of birds, I think, can be a wonderful addition because, like you said, if you're not one who's excited to chase birds around with a pair of binoculars, you can start this way. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to share that that book That's with amazing. you there. It's really neat. So this... Um, Somebody who is just getting into birding, I'm curious, what what would Nicole have told Nicole who is just getting into birding? Where would some resources be that you would have pointed yourself to 10 years ago? Absolutely. So I would do what I did, which is become a member of Travis Audubon. You don't have to become a member. Our, most of our programming is, is free and open to everybody. You can subscribe to our emails without being a member. Um, we see it as a real public service to provide all this information. But... Becoming a member gets you connected to other birders. And that's where I learned the most by far is just saying, you know what? I'm going to go to the the Hornsby Bend uh, bird walk that's once a month. Um, that Hornsby Bend, if, if you guys don't know, is the water treatment facility right near the airport and is one of the preeminent birding locations in the state. I mean, it is an amazing, amazing place. It has really diverse habitat. The ponds that they use for the water treatment really draw all sorts of migrants. You can see cool birds there that are like stopping, stopping at the pond from flying from the Arctic. Like that's during migration. It's just an amazing place to go. But, um, there, and, um, a, a thing that I love about birders is they're usually, um, you know, by, by far really welcoming to beginners love to share their passion with new people. And so that's what I would do is I would just sign up for a bird walk. There's a couple of great places in town that I would recommend and just like know that you're going to encounter somebody who's very skilled, knows a lot of what we're going to be seeing can, can identify things by song, by ear. And a lot of times they have the very fancy optics, you know, a scope or something that like, I I don't have a scope. It's a, it's a lot of money. Um, Swarsky. Yes, but they have it and they will, they will train, they will focus it right on a beautiful painted bunting in the distance and you will gasp seeing that thing up close. So that's, that's always my advice to people is go birding with other birders because you will learn so, so much. Um, and then also you don't have to, it can be whatever you want it to be. You, if you like, you know, passively listening to a bird song in your backyard and it's not important to you to know the names of everything you're seeing, that is enjoying birds. That counts. That's birding as far as I'm concerned. If you want to have a county list and you are traveling all over the state to get birds every year and finding, you know, rare, have rare bird alerts on your phone and you're really into it and you want to be able to identify every possible migrant that comes through, like that's also birding. So you get to decide where you find enjoyment. If you want it to be more like a competition, go do it. If you want it to just be how you make your mental health (laughs) feel good, then that's also great. So um, I think there's a lot of variety in what people want to experience and you don't have to dive in. You can, you can tiptoe in. That's kind of how I did it. And um, it brings a lot of real joy and enjoyment. I'm, I just, I think everybody should try it. Have you ever drawn birds? 
No, I have no uh, artistic skill whatsoever. Oh, come on. You can't say that. <laughs> Everybody's got artistic skill in some way. I, yeah, I, I have not, um, I've not tried that. We have talked about having, you know, lots of Audubon societies do things like, you know, bird painting and, you know, ha- have people who do think that they have artistic skill, they can come and enjoy that kind of thing. We haven't done that um, so far, but it's something that we've, that we've talked about a lot. But yeah, I think there's, as a creative expression, there's probably ways. I, I just tend not to think that way. <laughs> I, I heard a saying a long time ago. It says, I've never truly seen something until I've drawn it. Okay. And I, when I started to apply that to my life, I started, because I have a nature journal. Well, there's not, I think there's a few on the shelf of it. Oh yeah, there's actually a few down there. Um, but after I started drawing things, uh, I started recognizing micro nuances that were in birds' eyes, like, oh my gosh, I didn't know there was three colors in that vulture's eye before. You know, it was um, moments like that that I started really connecting with them beyond just seeing them because I felt like I knew more without getting super close and invasive towards, you know, it's space. That's what I mean by invasive. Um, And, yeah, and the other thing that I really um, enjoy is the... uh, Oh gosh, what is it called? Austin Nature and Science Center. Have you ever been there? I have. It's yeah. a great spot. Yeah. That is such a great place to see birds right up in their habitat. Mm-hmm. You know, that little roadrunner that's on the ground in there and then the owls. And so, yeah, I think there's a bunch of, what are some other good spots that you would recommend around Austin for birders? Yeah. So my favorite three are Hornsby Bend, which I mentioned it is open to the public, sunrise to sunset. You do have to like stop at a gate and give them your information, but um, it's a great a great spot to bird. Um, I love Commons Ford Metro Park, which is sort of if you're if you're kind of west, that is a great um, a great place to go. We were involved in a um, tall grass prairie restoration there. It's a forty acre prairie that um, is a fantastic place to see grassland birds because grassland birds are some of the ones that their habitat is really diminished. If you think about the past 150 years, there's just not very many grasslands left. But it's a it's a really cool model of what can happen if you restore habitat because it was all um, King Ranch bluestem, which is an invasive grass that was people were encouraged to plant all in the 40s and 50s, and then, of course, it spread everywhere. And they methodically, um, about, I guess it's almost 15 years ago now, removed that species and replaced it with native grasses and wildflowers. And then periodically, because a prairie needs fire to maximally function, they'll do a prescribed burn. They actually just did one in January this year. And the combination of that burn with the rains that we've had, it is like exploding with birds and pollinators. It is such a fun place to go. Um, so high recommend for Commons Ford Metro Park. It's a place also where there are walks there pretty much every week. You can look on our calendar and find one. And then another place that I really love on the east side of town is uh, Roy Guerrero. And um, because it's so near the river and it has like amazing riparian habitat, it's another just like really cool place that um, I, I really recommend to people. So those are probably my top my top three. Yeah, I love Roy Guerrero. That's one of my favorite places. It's where all the kids are doing summer camp right now. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an amazing, I'm so grateful to the uh, 
people who, who gave that to the city because it's an amazing, um, yeah. amazing spot. It's beautiful. There's a little nature preserve back there called Ecology Action. Have you I ever know. walked yes. back in there? Love Have you ever seen that big Action. pond that's back there? There's a big pond back there, and man, there's always herons and egrets and all kinds of big big, big blue herons, too, um, back there just munching away. And they're actually, I think, more tolerable of the humans because there's so many bikers yeah. and trail walkers back there. So when you walk back there, they're not as quick to startle mm-hmm. because I think they know, you. well, you ain't walking out to the middle of this area because there's like a, I don't know if it's like a hay bale thing that held hay and it's turned on its side. Uh-huh. So it's like this arc and they all just hang together up oh, cool. there. And yeah. yeah, it's really beautiful. So great place to go see birds out there. Um, and beyond bird watching, I'm just curious if you could speak to what are some other ways that people could use these skills that they're developing within birding? You know, is there anything else that you have noticed that's changed in your life? You're like, oh my gosh, I probably wouldn't have been that good at something else if it wouldn't for this technique that I developed birding. Sure. I mean, the main thing that I love about birding, nature in general, but birding in particular is what taught this to me is just noticing, right? If you, and I have the kind of brain, I don't know about you, I'm always worried about something that already happened, worried about the next thing tomorrow. I'm, I am not good at being present at just being in the moment and birding is like the key mm-hmm. to my being able to do that. And so taking that and applying it to whatever else you're interested in, I happened to my pandemic hobby was finding fungus. I became obsessed with mushrooms, slime molds, and fungus. <laughs> I would go on a walk pretty much every day during the pandemic and even just in my neighborhood, noticing what was growing. It's a lot easier to take pictures of fungus than it is of birds. <laughs> so I have lots of photos on my phone, but I, that was something and it was the same thing it's like I have curiosity about this thing I'm just scan- always looking for what I see in people's yards on people's trees and then um like a lot of things nowadays there are there are great field guys there are great apps that help you like figure out fungus is a lot more challenging because there are literally tens of thousands of species and we know very little about most of them. Um, there is actually a central Texas mycological association, which I'm a member of. And I, I really recommend they have great programming and like really fun people. Um, we had them on the podcast. Oh, excellent. (laughs) I love them. We just had a talk. We do a monthly talk and we did, a conversation about the connections in nature between birds and fungi and it was it was what fascinating oh man i would have loved to be there for yeah. that yeah. that that probably i gotta have is there a link or anything we oh, can yeah. watch or and listen there's, to there's a youtube video oh yes okay good you're yeah. gonna get to give me that after this episode we're done yeah. um and i think just just noticing like paying attention is a huge lesson that i've learned from birding that i think applies all over your life but um it's really helped me um, just magnify or increase my enjoyment when I'm outside is just like, yeah, what is there to see? What is there to listen to? I think, I think I would second that, that it has changed my attention to detail. Yeah. You know, like how much I notice and observe little things about whether it's people or places that I'm going to or any of that. Yeah. I think humans, like you had said earlier is that we've, you know, we've, we've gotten to, myopic in a sense um and we miss the little things you know and so 
noticing a scissor tail fly catcher or a kestrel sitting up on one of those telephone poles. And what's that? And it's, it's claw or it's beak. Oh, it's a lizard. You know, are you that good at noticing those micro things? And to me, I think it just brings joy. It's a moment of connection with that creature. Maybe that it doesn't um, honor within you, but you honor within it. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I'm, you had mentioned some apps. Um, is there any couple apps that you would recommend for birders or? So my number one recommendation is the Merlin app. Yeah. Um, the Cornell lab of ornithology, it's a free app. Um, you can download it on your phone. It's great for beginners. I use it all the time whenever I like keep seeing a bird and I just don't know what it is. And it leads you through a series of prompts. You can do bird ID. You can also do sound ID, which is so great. Um, I will get, when you're into birds, you're the person that all of your friends will send you pictures or sound recordings of and be like, what is this? What, what, what could this be? And so sometimes I just play it for Merlin because I don't know what it, I mean, I'm not actually very good at birding by ear. It, it takes a it takes a real uh, skill set to be able to get very good at that. But um, it's like a Shazam for birds. It's totally Shazam for birds. But it's um, <laughs> it's so very cool. user friendly and it connects to eBird, which is my second thing that I recommend to people. I was resistant to eBird for a long time because I was like, I don't want to have my phone when I'm out in nature, and I don't want to. It. I've come around because it contributes to this community science that is really important for conservation. So people all over the world use eBird. It's basically you you just say um, what you're seeing and how many, and then you submit it to their database, right, the Cornell Lab. And then they are able to crunch all that data. And over time, you know, people used to do this um, for 100 years. People have been doing Christmas bird counts, for example. And, you know, people were keeping notebooks. Well, a lot of that old data has been digitized. And so they have records for now a a pretty long amount of time, 100 years of data from birders all over the country. And that was a really important source of um, the study that they did in 2019 that showed that we we can now tell that um, numbers of birds in North America are declining and and rapidly over the past 50 years. We've lost a tremendous amount of birds. And this all is aligned with what we know about biodiversity loss and all these things. But it's because people were submitting their data. Yeah, that they're able to see this because imagine it's, you know, thousands of people all over saying like, I used to see brown thrasher here. I haven't seen it for the past two years. That's one example, but you know, combined with all the other data that they're gathering it, they can, they can figure stuff out. Yeah. They're they're smarter than me, but have you used, um, seek at all? No, no. Seek is just the same. I think it's like a, you, Take the app, you point it at something, and it'll identify it in any way, shape, or form. Okay, nice. It's actually pretty cool. So all your slime molds and Well, things. I use iNaturalist a lot yeah. for, for that, and it's usually decent. It'll get me in the right direction, and then usually there's a user who's like, I know what that is, and they'll tell yeah, me. Yeah, so that's the old way of doing it. Oh, there's the new way. Name. So okay. Seek is, uh, uh, Seek's engine is iNaturalist. Okay. So what you do is you get seek and you walk around and you literally just point it at any flower, plant, bird, mold. I don't think it's gotten that good at animal tracks yet, 
but maybe they're working on that. It's by iNat. But it's by iNaturalist, yeah. And so you point it at anything, and it'll get you, obviously, all the way through, you know, order, class, phylum, kingdom, all that stuff. Um, And then down to species, if it can. But I've been able to identify a lot of the molds and the slime and the different fungus and the lichens and all of that with the app, and it's a lot of fun. If you kind of give it a half of a mushroom, meaning like you let it look at the gills and kind of the yep, side, it'll get down into the species, which is really cool and convenient. So I've just downloaded it. Yeah. I consider myself influenced. Well, you, what's fun about it is it's not just a way to identify things. It gives you little missions like throughout the week and throughout the month and throughout the year. So you, as the Travis Audubon, you might actually link up with them because I'm sure they would partner with y'all instantly and say, hey, for this month, we are doing a challenge and all the people around Austin will open up their CCAP and they will go ham giving you data for your research project. So that's what iNaturalist is starting to do more is the citizen science stuff. Obviously, you're contributing unknowingly to all of it. Yeah. When people chime in there, it's probably ornithologists and stuff. But yeah, I love iNaturalist. I love Seek. Um, it's really funny how um, I think my friend Jonah Evans got it started in a way, iNaturalist, because I kept complaining to him and I was like doing wildlife tracking way back in 2010. I was like, dude, this is ridiculous that you're having to drop me pins on this map and tell me where I can find weasel tracks on the, you know, village Creek part of Texas and all this. And I was like, where's there a dang app that you just like click a button and it just bio, you know, reference geo references, excuse me, where exactly you saw it, what it was, and just gives that data to everybody. Absolutely. And And I think we're going to get better at this. Like we're entering a really cool phase of, you know, this participation in, in science, I think with, I mean, there are a lot of bad things about having a computer in your pocket, but I think there are a lot of good things too. And then this is an example of one where you can be contributing to things. Yeah. Like yeah. Well, and it's fun too, because the little challenges are really neat. It's like, okay, this time we're doing ponds. And so it's anything at a pond. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's flowers, birds, if it's trees, if it's insects and little, I think you can even, you know, identify like little dragonfly naiads that have escaped like even down to the little exoskeletons which is so cool so yeah i was going to ask too like if you thought but it sounds like we've already kind of covered the question but if you thought technology might be leading people more away from nature or more towards well i think it depends um but certainly there there are great tools that people can use to i think enhance their enjoyment of spending time outside but you have to go outside If if you're in front of a screen all the time like, we're not meant to do that. Yeah. We're definitely, it's not good for our brains or our bodies. So. I think um, there's an old saying that I tell the kids all the time. I say, the only way to turn knowledge, which is reading a book, into wisdom is through experience. Mm-hmm. So I tell them that all the time. You've got to go out there and apply this stuff. Because looking at this book is fun. Don't get me wrong. But when you actually match up the Bob White tracks with them in the field, it just it's just like seeing the bird with the binoculars and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. that's a painted bunting. No, it's like, gotta go out. Yeah, you gotta, gotta go, go out. out. It's mm-hmm. so much fun. Um, so I want to bird nerd out a little bit with you by asking you, are there any myths that you know about birding that you would like to dispel for our listeners? I'll give you a couple of examples if okay, you'd like yeah, some. Yeah, give me some examples. Um, birds sing because they're happy. Oh, sure. No. <laughs> I mean, that, if birds make me happy when they sing, but no, they... Um, Typically, it's the males who are singing. That's not always true, but it's males who are singing, and it's a way to attract a mate. Uh, There is communication. Some birds have what they call chip notes. Uh, Fledglings often have chip notes, and it's like, Mom, 
mom, mom. Yeah, juvenile begging. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then birds who are not on their breeding grounds, like birds who are here with us for the winter, typically don't sing, but they do vocalize. So mm. there's like different purposes, but it's most of what we think about as, as song has to do with breeding and mating. Um, birds mate for life? No. I think there are some that do, but I think increasingly science has discovered that it's not very common at all. <laughs> um, birds will abandon their young if you go near or touch their eggs or nest. No, that's not true. I mean, I would I would advise that people don't go near uh, baby birds, don't touch eggs, leave a nest alone. Um, but there's not anything that will make a mother reject if say say a, a baby bird that's too young. So there's a difference between a nestling and a fledgling. That's an important thing for people to know. A nestling is sometimes their eyes are still closed. They don't have feathers. They look very little. If a nestling falls out of the nest, they might need your help to get back in there. So um, the the advice for something like that is you can gently put the, the bird back in the nest. I would wear a glove so that you're not accidentally giving it your germs. Um, a fledgling, its job is to get out of the nest. It wants to, to hop around. It wants to learn some of these skills. And it looks like a fluffy poof ball. And those birds, like, we should leave alone. Of course, there are lots of dangers for a bird on the ground. It's more exposed to predators. Please keep your cats inside. Cats are a huge reason why our native birds are finding. <laughs> oh, we have a biodiversity crisis, and birds are telling us that. Um, snakes, anything will eat a baby bird. Like, it's delicious for, for much of the what's happening in the food oh, chain. Yeah. But you can leave it alone. It really is okay. Um, and the mother, it doesn't. We should leave them alone. A lot of birds will fiercely defend a nest. If you notice a bird is dive bombing you, it's probably because you're walking right by their nest. But um, we can leave them alone. We don't have to touch them. We don't have to be afraid if we do touch them that it's going to have an adverse effect. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for saying that because there's a lot of people who see, you know, fledglings on the ground. They're like, put it in a box. It's a wildlife rescue. It's like, no, just leave it alone. Yeah. it Sometimes if it's like a major injury and you recognize that, I think it's fine. Yeah. But if it looks to be in good fashion you know i think you can tell if you have animals what's good fashion um but yeah a lot of people tend to do that i'll never forget a moment i turned to this turned down the street to go to my house and there was this um eastern screech owl she was down oh. on the ground mm -hmm. and i noticed she flew away quickly and i but something else was there and i was like what the heck is that and it was a little fledgling yeah. eastern screech and and I, I was outside these people's house and so they came out instantly and were like what are you doing outside my house and i was like oh this is like a fledgling on the ground they're like oh my gosh i'll call wildlife rescue and i was like no 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 no, don't don't do that i was like it's just neat to see i'm just trying to get a photo of it okay. and um i got like you know pretty probably from here to the water bottle a couple feet and just snapped a photo and it's like this cute little eastern screech owl sitting on the ground but you could see mom was coming yeah. back to it and yeah. taking care of it. It was nighttime. It made sense. Um, all right. I got a couple more myths for okay. you. Um, teeth inside beaks. I actually don't know the answer to that. Ah, okay. You teach me. Well, I, I think that birds, if my, it's my understanding, and again, you can correct me here, that they have beaks, bills, and what's the third one? I, I think there's three. I, I think it's know. beaks, bills, and something. I don't remember. I have a whole book over there about it. Um, I forget what they are. Maybe this ornithology book, a manual of ornithology will tell okay, us. We'll but, brush up on our anatomy real quick. But um, the, typically, the beaks are for, you know, like flesh tearing, like grabbing on, uh -huh. ripping. You know, think of like a raptor beak. Yes, like um, a curved. Right. Yes. Versus, yes, yes. you know, a sandpiper 
or, um, you know, a Phoebe obviously has a very short bill. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because if a short bill, think about the leverage you get with a crimping tool, right? It cracks seeds open. Whereas a probing tool, um, you know, a willet along the coast, right? They've got these, I think they go after slugs and various things like that. So I, I think that there's a lot of people who perceive that there's teeth inside there. Some of them, like ducks with bills, I think have teeth to grab on and hold. I think the teeth hook back yeah. so that when the fish is in there, it's like a barb on a fishing hook, if you will. Sure. So I think that's it. I think I love it. Oh, I, I, and when you say teeth, like I think people imagine teeth like we have. It's, it's not. It's like a, a structure, right, on there. It's probably anatomy. cartilage. I would imagine. Yeah. Well, I mean. This is a good example of just how birds are an amazing display of evolution, right? Yeah. There was an article actually just this past week about how they think we got from dinosaurs to birds. Uh, and it is fascinating. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Um, and one of the the scientists who has done a lot of work at this is named Julia Clark, and she's at UT. And um, they talked about how... I'm getting her on. The, uh, this newest Jurassic World movie, which I haven't seen, they show dinosaurs with feathers. And this is the thing that uh, people reacted to. And they're like, that's not real. And they were like, oh, no, no. We suspected this for a long time. And now we have evidence, fossil evidence for it. All you got to do is look at an ostrich's foot. Yeah. Look at that foot, man. Tell me that is not the dinosaur's foot. Do you know that bird, I think, that you're talking about, the dinosaur, isn't it called Arctioptrix? That's one of them. Um, I don't know that that's the one in the movie, but that was the first fossil that they found that they were, they were like, oh, this is this seems like a bird. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's like moving in that direction. Right. Um. Yeah, and, and just how specialized they are. Like you were just giving examples of species and, and what they're meant to do. Like flightless birds are amazing to think yeah. about. Um, you know, those are those are evolved for a really special place where they didn't have predators that they had to fly away from. Right. Like it's um and the more you learn about it, the science part of it, I'm not a scientist as evidenced by this whole conversation, but um the more you see it and how everything fits together, it's just a beautiful example of how biology works. Like that it's just, you know, over all of these thousands of years that these amazing creatures that are so specialized for their habitat and so specialized for the job they need to do. It's so cool. Happened. Yeah. I, I find it, you know, like there's a old saying to uh, nature abhors a void sure. and that every single thing is just like perfectly in its place. And I just think about that all the time. Um, anytime I see a bird, you know, I just wonder like even the ones that were like house sparrows, I'm like, I don't know. They're probably keeping the insects that you don't want right. in your house at bay. So he has a job. Yeah. Well, and that's, this is a, this makes me sound a little bit um, dense, but this is a, this turned on a light bulb for me. Um, One of the first birding classes that I took was with a city of Austin biologist. His name is Bill Reiner. He's one of the best birders and naturalists I've ever met. And it was all about how habitat is, is as important as, you know, things about the bird. If you, if you want to learn about where to look for birds, what to look for, you need to be paying attention to habitat. And I don't know. I just never put together that like some birds like edges, some birds like dense canopy, some birds need to be up high. Some birds are on the ground. Some birds, you know, need this kind of pollen that's only in grassland plants and some, and it's just like, oh, it all clicked together that it's not just about like, well, where do they like to be? It's that they fit into a niche that is just right for them and other birds don't occupy that niche. And so you have to really, um, that opened up a huge thing to me. Cause it's like, then I learned like, Oh, I wouldn't expect to see this bird here. It's probably something else. Or, 
oh, this is what I think it is. And it's an unusual place for it to be. You know, you sort of like learn more about what they need and what they require. Yeah. Well, I was in uh, Big Ben one time and I swore I saw a Canyon Wren or a Buick's Wren. And I was like, what the heck? And then it turned out to be a Cactus Wren because I kept seeing it fly in and out of this little cactus. And it's so, yeah, everywhere you go, uh, you keep seeing that these birds have made such a beautiful little oasis for themselves in these various particular types of environments. And again, whether it be like parking lots with grackles, mm-hmm. right? We all know those, we call them HEB radio birds mm-hmm. and, uh, or the estuary areas down where the rivers meet, you know, the Gulf and all of it, every little bit has something unique where just like you said, that bird has got to be. And that's how I got into animal track. Well, that, that, moment for me that happened for you that click that happened with animal tracking for me because I was like I could just go anywhere and I'm going to see animal tracks Mm -hmm. and that is not true Mm -mm. you know I was like dang I'm really and I noticed the best places if you're wanting to get into animal tracking you probably see some bird tracks under there too is under bridges because animals need a place to cross Mm -hmm. and so under bridges don't get weathered so it's just dust. It could be clay because the you know water rose from a recent rain and deposited all the clay. Now the animals are just crisscrossing to and fro. Um, all kinds of things underneath bridges are some of my favorite places. And it's really neat too. I'll give you all, uh, for those of you who live in Austin, a unique place to go explore is along Onion Creek underneath William Cannon. And if you keep kind of going east uh, along underneath the bridge of William Cannon, you eventually will meet a big old family of barn owls that live underneath there. And one of the coolest things to do is just walk the ground. Um, If you're there during the day, they may be trying to sleep. So, you know, don't be too uh, noisy, but you can find their pellets and everything they're eating is inside those pellets. And it's so fascinating. So again, one more layer of how bizarre barn owls under bridges are they bridge (laughs) owls folks (laughs) so a couple more myths here um birds migrate because it's cold no um birds migrate we i'll just say we don't know a lot about exactly what's happening with migration it's kind of miraculous they can they can sense the magnetism of the earth, for example, and know that the season's going to change. They use the stars to navigate. I, I can't use the stars to navigate, but these things with literal bird brains can do this. Um, but it's more about availability of food and their motivation to, to breed. So in the spring, that's when we have really intense, fast migration, lots of things coming through. We're technically still in spring migration, but it really drops off. It's it basically June 15th is when things stop moving. But... Those birds that are coming um, north to their breeding grounds, all they want to do is breed. They're like babies, babies, babies. So they are on a mission to find that. And they're, they, they sort of know when it's time, when their availability of food and when this, this you know inspiration starts to happen inside them. Um, and they are ready to go. Fall migration is more like we've been on vacation. We've done everything, all the work we need to do. We've had a really great time. Now it's like a, a leisurely mosey back to head down to their what what is winter vac- vacation, right? Down to usually some some birds we are there south for the winter, like a cedar waxwing. Other birds they go further, you know, to Central America, to the Amazon, for example. Golden cheeks go to um, Guatemala and Mexico, but um, fall migration takes a lot longer. They're just like more slow. And again, it's because they've like done what they needed to do biologically in the spring and summer. And now they're like slowly headed back down and then they do it all over again. Boom. It's not like, oh, I'm cold. It's time to go. No. 
Yeah, it's um, that the, the part that you said about how they navigate is so perplexing to me. That is so fascinating. Do you know which bird f- flies the farthest? Arctic tern. I think that's right. I think it's right. I think too. it's like twelve thousand. I, I miles, give a right? talk on migration to to. Um, I think that's right. It might be at the Aleutian tern, but it, I think it's the Arctic tern. I I think it's the Arctic tern, but I always yeah. highlight that one that it's like going to the moon three times. That's they can right. live to be thirty years old, Isn't like they're amazing? a long lived bird, but. Are they that bird that, <laughs> I think I saw an, an Attenborough documentary on this, are they the bird that nests on the cliff sides and when the babies hatch, they're like, all right, peace, and they just jump it, off? It could be. I think that's them, and the babies just jump off the cliff too, and they hit the water, and then they just swim away with mom, and I think it's like one, and that's a good question. It was Statistically, what do you think is the percentage of babies that grow up to producing more babies? It's not very good. Um, I, I like to say it's it's really a hard life to be a bird. I think so. A wild bird, um, you got to think about all the things that have to go right for it to survive, right? Uh, their nest doesn't have, can't be predated. Well, their parents have to meet. They have to successfully have a good nesting location. I, I said before, everything wants to eat a baby bird. So even if the eggs hatch, um, that's a problem. And then there's just lots of threats and humans are a cause of a lot of those threats. I mentioned cats. Um, we have glass all over our buildings. Birds can't see glass. So they fly into windows. Um, that's a huge factor for bird mortality. There are things that we can do about that, but it's, it's a thing that is our fault. Um, and then again, we're taking away all their habitat. (laughs) So, um, it is a, I would say it's about 50%. It's like a, a coin toss about whether a bird survives to, to breed. But, um, it's a, it's one of those things people want to have nest boxes or like watch, um, bird cams and you're like, oh, it's great until it goes wrong. Cause nature is like that. And it's really hard. But, um, I heard a story once about there was a peregrine, uh, no, no, no. Yes. It was an osprey cam and they, a class was watching it and you know, the osprey had some chicks and they're so cute and it's beautiful. And then it's like, while they're watching a bald eagle comes and just grabs a chick. Same thing. People have owl houses and like they have cameras on them. And then it's like, you see a raccoon hand grab an owlet and it's like, it's devastating. And it's also like, that's the way it goes. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's one of those things that nature can bring joy, but it's also like, it's, it's pretty intense. It can be pretty sad. Yeah, definitely. Um, deters people you know as you can see behind us here there's this big grassland it can never be uh-huh. developed because it's one of the central texas's protected grassland oh, nice. areas and but obviously there's a plenty of mice and rats and i think maybe last year when it was really hot it hadn't rained in a long time i always put water out obviously for birds and different things and i put up a little tripod camera and a um, hispid cotton rat decided mm-hmm. to come over and it investigated the little camera and got a drink from the water. But then very next day, uh, my girlfriend happened to look outside and she just sees right on that fence right there, this, it, just this big old red-shouldered hawk just ripping oh, this yeah. thing to shreds. And she's just yeah. ab- absolutely horrified because I put the water out. She's like, Kid, you got it killed. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the causation to correlation, but okay. <laughs> well, everybody's got to eat, right? Yeah, like, that's what is, I told her. Nature's... Nature is tough. I, I told her, I was like, that. I was like, which do you feel worse for? The little creature they got to eat or the starving chicks in the nest? Mm-hmm. Oh, conundrum there, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the beauty of understanding nature is the empathy that you derive for not only yourself. And, you know, you had said earlier about how birds, you know, they, they're so meaningful to us. And I don't 
really think people understand how true that is until they start watching them because they start going, oh my gosh, look at it trying to raise its young and oh my gosh, it's trying to pair and oh, it's trying to display this mating and courtship ritual and but oh, that wasn't good enough and you start to realize your own, oh man, I, I know what that's like, bird. You know, sure. <laughs> I've been there in that failed date. And yeah. So Well, and this time of year, I always tell people there are, you know, there are a lot of birds that are still on the nest, but a lot of fledglings out. So my colleague actually, well, right before I got in the car to come here, sent me a video of the Papa Cardinal feeding a fledgling in her yard. And, you know, the fledglings like vibrate their wings and they scream. They're like, Dad, please. And they, um, you know, they're just awkward looking, still kind of fuzzy. But those it's amazing to watch that happen and then to think about, you know, if you know somebody who has a baby and like watching them care for yep. that baby and, you know, they cry when they're hungry. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's it's beautiful. And again, I, I just feel it. We need things out external of us to give us deeper insights. And I think nature does that so beautifully. Um, rice thrown at weddings, going back to our myths here. What do you think about that one? I've heard that it's not good for birds. Um, I don't know why. It, does it? Is that true that it explode? That it can? I read that it's not true. That it's not true. That they're capable of ingesting expandable grains, just like most things are. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it mostly just makes a mess. I'm like anti yeah. things that like get in our watershed that shouldn't be there. But I think the feeding bread to ducks. I believe that one's That's, not. So in general. Talking about evolution, birds have not evolved to eat people food. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> right. Processed <laughs> grains are not something yeah. that they would ever find in their diet. So, yeah, it's, I, I understand the impulse. It's fun to feed ducks. And yeah. it's like, that's not good for them. And they're, you know, that's not what they need. They can find what they need in the algae and all the plants. They're looking for, I don't even know, weird, weird, small creatures that live in ponds. Things. Yeah. Um. All right. A couple last questions here. Best bird encounter ever. What was it? Okay. this just, I've had many great bird encounters, and this you one- You can share a few. This one just pops to mind because I, I it was so funny. Um, so when you get into birding, it's something you can do anywhere you go in the world, right? And so I have had opportunities to, to travel in different places, and I went to Costa Rica, which is a beautiful place that's really fun to go birding because it's like every bird there I've never seen before. And, you know, lots of tropical birds are very brightly colored and just like very conspicuous and beautiful. And so uh, my friend and I went birding and we saw all these amazing birds, but I had really wanted to see a turquoise browed mot mot and we didn't see one. Turquoise browed mot mot is like this cool, like, I don't know how to even describe its size. It is kind of a maybe a robin size, but it's oriented more vertically, and it has a tail that has these two like paddle shaped feathers, and it's got this beautiful bright blue plumage. It's just yeah, it's a beautiful bird. That um, is beautiful. And we didn't see it, and I was like, oh, and we had birded for like six hours, and I I'm like into birding, but also like want to stop and go put my feet up. So we had stopped and said, well, I didn't get to see it, and the next morning. Um, my friends and I were waiting to go snorkeling. We were being picked up to go snorkeling. And my friend looks up on the telephone line and said, well, that bird has a weird looking tail. Oh, and I look up we and go. it's the turquoise browed mot mot stand, like literally right above us oh. on this, this telephone line. So it's one of those things where it's like you can have a magical encounter anywhere. Um, the, are those, see, going back to 
birding, right? Immediately when I see this one here, mm -hmm. that looks like a kingfisher family. Yes. Well, they have that real heavy beak. It also reminds me in Africa, they have bee eaters uh -huh. also look kind of like that. Yeah. Um, I wonder if those are also in the kingfisher. But th then the tail throws me into, uh -huh. you said M, M, Breads. Oh, impids. Impids. I sorry. I, well, <laughs> impids. <laughs> sorry. This is, it's one of those, again, it's an evolutionary thing. And you should talk to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about because I don't. But there are things that have evolved in similar ways in different parts of the world, right? Like if you go to um, Africa, they have sunbirds. Sunbirds are very similar looking to hummingbirds. Hummingbirds are in the Americas and sunbirds are in Africa. And so it's like, there must be similar things that have happened in their evolutionary course that like made them look similar, need similar kinds of food, whatever, but they're totally not related. It's a different, wow. it's a different thing. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I've, um, I think somebody told me one time they saw a hummingbird in Australia and I was like, what? I was they like, have I something else. I, I was don't like, I don't think is. that was a hummingbird then. Cause I know that they're yeah. not in Australia. Yeah. How would they get? How would they get there? I guess you could bring them there. But yeah, that's cool um, to know. It almost reminds me that when you look at a bird, like instantly you can tell what family it's in if you've done it long enough. Um, and I think folks, for y'all listening and wanting to get into birding, that makes looking at field guides a heck of a lot easier. Because mm -hmm. if you can just look it up quickly by family, I didn't actually know the impid one. I know like icterids, you know, um, corvids. Um, cuckoos, all that type of stuff, like roadrunner families and different things. But it's mainly because of my passion for wildlife tracking. Right. But um, this is a beautiful bird. It's pretty and amazing. They're only in Costa Rica. They're in Central America. You can I've seen them in Guatemala too. There's all different kinds of mot moths. Also, mot moths. There's not just the turquoise brown. Like um, one closer to home that just pops to mind. Also, since we're coming out of migration. Um, the, you know, after I first got into birding and then I had my first spring migration and I put, I putting a feeder out and I remember distinctly like screaming because there was a bird that I had never seen before. It ended up being a rose breasted grosbeak, which is a migrant that we don't have that often. Um, but he came to my feeder. That's the one, the, is that the one with the, the pinched bill, the grosbeak? No, that's a crossbill. Oh, crossbill. We Sorry. don't get crossbills here. Dang. Um, rose breasted grosbeak. Trying to find them in the. Yeah, those are. I think I've seen those a few times. It's a beautiful, but it's a it's a passer through. It's not. They don't breed here. Um, it was just it was just a lucky day. Yeah. That I got to see him. Of course, I can't find him in the book. No um, but it was a thing where I like screamed, and I've never had one at my feeder again. That was the first year I was birding that I got to have that experience, and and it's you know, and then anything where you're out, and especially during migration, and it's like. A Baltimore Oriole is really exciting when you're like, that's an orange bird. And then you're like, wait a minute, what could that be? It's it's yeah. such a fun, I have lots of experiences like that where you're just like minding your own business and then something really cool yeah. just flies right up and sings right in your face. And you're like, this is the best. I love those um, bizarre nests that the Altamira Oriole makes. They're like these gigantic things and now I, I you can correct i don't know if you know about them but i was told that the reason they're doing that is because it's so difficult for predators to get in and then down but then back out they can I get in but it. then they get stuck and they just know intuitively like that doesn't look like i could well, get I'm down out of there. yeah even yeah. snakes like they don't get down in there unless they've got something i believe to latch mm -hmm. onto and then get down but the way they're built it won't support the weight of yeah. man nature just mind-bogglingly cool. And they know how they they're born knowing how to do that. Yeah. 
that's that's the other thing is how. Like I'm I'm pretty certain that yeah, puppies and things that you adopt, like they just intuitively know to eat grass and regurgitate things that are bad. <laughs> like it's like I don't think I taught them that. Um, well, this has been an awesome podcast, Nicole, and I really thank you for coming on. And if you want to share anything else that you wanted to share before you came on that we didn't get to talk about. I would just encourage folks, no matter where they're listening from, if you're in Austin, um, Travis Audubon is a great resource. Uh, go to our website, find, sign up for our emails, check out our calendar. Like I said, yeah. we have walks all the time and it's a great way to get into it. But um, anywhere where people are listening, they probably have an Audubon Society that's local to them that works on local conservation that can give you great ideas for you know, if you want to draw more birds to your yard, they'll, they'll tell you plants that will do that. There's, there's just lots of great things to connect. So I would say, look up your local Audubon chapter and get involved with them because it's not just about birds. Like we said, it's, it's about everything else, but that's a great resource and they're all really good organizations. Let's, let's conserve nature y'all. Um, Instagram, Facebook, anywhere we can find you there. Oh, Sure. Well, I would encourage you to follow Travis Audubon. We have a lot of good content. It's at Travis Audubon Society. And then if you want to follow me personally, it's at Pictacular. There you go. It's mostly pictures of mushrooms. Heck yeah. Sometimes birds. (laughs) I don't, I only have my iPhone, so it's really hard to take pictures of birds, but sometimes I share other pictures. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for being on. We hope to have you back and uh, catch up with you at another time and hear more about what Travis Audubon is doing. Thanks, Chris. Y'all take care, everybody. Bye-bye.